let's talk about the good things that America is doing and have these reporters do it from a more pro-American vantage point. It is the week of April 11th, and welcome to episode 127 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. I'm Lester Munson, your host. Public diplomacy has played a critical role in telling the truth and countering propaganda in today's global environment. Today's episode will feature a deep dive with Heather Nauert, advisory board member of BGR Group, former journalist with Fox News and ABC News, former State Department spokesperson, and former acting undersecretary for public diplomacy at the State Department to discuss what America should be doing in this increasingly important sphere of national security. Heather, thanks for doing the podcast this week. Hey, Lester, great to be with you. So let's talk about public diplomacy and Ukraine. I think the most blazingly obvious thing that's going on here is that President Zelensky has been incredibly effective at delivering messages, at being an actor on the world stage, and really using public diplomacy in a way that, frankly, I think a lot of people didn't even imagine was possible. Mm. What, what are some lessons we can learn from what we've seen just in the last six weeks? Sure. I mean, he has been such a master at it. And less as, as, as watchers, observers of what goes on internationally, I think we could all agree that he is an effective, strong communicator. And the most effective leaders are strong communicators. And one of the things that we see in President Zelensky is that he's authentic. And people can relate to that. He knows how to utilize social media and do it in a way that evokes the emotion and pulls people together. And sometimes it's, it's the man who rises up to the moment. And that's what we've seen with President Zelensky. He's the right person at the right time, handling a very difficult and horrific situation, but he's handling it beautifully, not only on the part of Ukrainians, but as we all, um, you know, lovers of freedom and democracy watch him, we're inspired by how he's handled this. Um, I think about some of the, just the basic tactics that he's used in recent weeks, um, and some of them are very simple, but very effective. Uh, I don't know if you recall this, but at one point he recorded the sound of an air raid siren and he played that for the world. And just in hearing that and seeing him show that, you know, evoked that emotion in all of this. Imagine what it would be like sitting in your home in your apartment and you hear air raid sirens. And that's something that's going on every single day for the Ukrainian people. So it makes it far more real uh, for those of us who are living in the United States or living in other safe environments. I want to ask you about something that the Biden administration did uh, in the lead up to the invasion. Um, mm. And, it's, and it's, a, it's a specific thing. And, and given your experience at the State Department, where you were you know, right on, out in the front lines dealing with reporters and messaging and also in, in a really senior management role, I'm really interested to see what you think about this. The, the Biden administration clearly made a decision. In, in advance of, of what happened, that they were going to counter Russian propaganda and Russian statements about what its intentions were vis-a-vis Ukraine with intelligence information. Maybe it was information that was previously classified. Maybe it wasn't. But in, in almost like an hour by hour basis, the Biden administration would kind of call baloney, if you will, on some of the things the Russians were doing. I Frankly, I thought that seemed like a pretty effective thing to do. I'm, I'm eager to hear what your 
sense of that was? What are the pros? What are the cons? Is this something we should be replicating? Right. I thought it was fascinating. As you would listen or watch President Biden talk about what we thought Russia was going to do, and it turns out that that was intelligence information that had apparently been declassified. And so you would hear the White House, the State Department, the Department of Defense talking about these things with one voice, all saying the same things from their respective podiums. Um, That was something that when I served at the State Department, we wouldn't necessarily have done. Um, I thought it was fascinating. I thought it was smart. But on the other hand, I think it can be tricky. Um, There's a debate going on in Washington about whether or not this is a good idea. On one hand, you know, we can talk about uh, what we believe Russia will do, such as we believe that Russia will invade. We believe that Russia will use chemical weapons as a way of stopping them from doing that and a way of horrifying the world and then bringing the world together to help ensure that Russia doesn't do something like that. Um, But it can be read two ways. Um, In one way, it can seem to give permission to an act such as an invasion. Um, It can seem to indicate that, oh, this is bound to happen. So we're just going to wait and let this happen. Almost a green light. But on the other hand, it steals the element of surprise for our adversary. And it can better enable allies to prepare for an event such as an invasion. So I, I, I can see it both ways. On one hand, declassifying it can be smart. It could bring the world together, rally folks behind a cause, allow our allies to prepare for something because we've declassified information. But on the other hand, and this is where it gets tricky, it could lead our adversaries to uncover sources and methods. Now, if it's only done once, maybe they won't uncover that. But if it's done systematically over a period of time where this information is revealed, we just have to be so careful that our sources, whomever they might be, aren't discovered and then retaliated against. So I think it's a great conversation uh, to have. And I have found it just fascinating to watch. One of the other things it seems to me is that that's that's going on in terms of uh, kind of public sentiment and public opinion Europe seems to be galvanized against Russia and what Russia has done and the horrific things that are happening in Ukraine. The rest of the world, not so much. Uh, we've seen developing countries, whether they're in Asia, Africa, Latin America, be a little more skeptical of our criticism of Russia. What do you think we, the United States, and maybe the West more broadly can do to try to bring along these other nation states' more unified approach towards what Russia's doing? Yeah, I I think that's also hard. On one hand, we've seen Europe come together. We've seen NATO and countries like Germany agree to increase, for example, 2% of GDP spending towards defense. This, what Russia has done, has galvanized Europe like we have not seen. And like President Trump wasn't able to get countries to do, uh, increase the amount of money that they give uh, to NATO in accordance to the Wales Agreement. So we've seen some success in, in, in some fronts in Europe. Where we haven't seen success has been in some Asian nations, in uh, South America and others. And they're acting out of selfish interests. You know, they're taking the position that they are because perhaps they get oil um, from Russia. In some countries, they'll receive wheat and other agricultural products. Russia is known for, you know, some of its, you know, great technology developers. Um, so you, you can see that countries are acting in their self-interest. And I think the United States is going to have to work a lot harder, not just at the State Department, but elsewhere to ramp up its public diplomacy efforts. 
And if I can compare this to China for a minute, and 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 when I worked at the State Department, we did something really well. And I think the the whole of government handled one belt, one road um, pushback very well. We started talking about debt trap diplomacy. And the fact that as China went in with one belt, one road, what China would do is offer cheap loans to countries. And China would come in with lots of construction workers and they would help build hospitals and all of this. Well, what ended up happening is whatever countries like bought into those plans, they ended up owing a heck of a lot more money than they ever thought they would owe. And it ended up not necessarily being good for those countries. And the countries lost their sovereignty. You know, they owed so much to China. So I thought we handled that one well and we explained it well um, under the past administration. Um, this one, again, is a little bit trickier. Um, Russia has, has its oil. Uh, a lot of countries need that. Russia has its agricultural products. Countries need that. Russia also has cheap weapons. And a lot of countries uh, want to, to utilize and purchase those cheap weapons. So I think what the United States has to do is, um, you know, work on selling its natural resources, um, work on selling its liquefied natural gas to make other countries less reliant upon Russia for oil. I think we need to ex um, increase our exchange programs. Um, I'm on the board of the Fulbright Foreign Scholarship Program, and I think the more that we can continue to uh, bring young people and academics from other countries to study in the United States to see what freedom is like, to experience democracy firsthand. And they go back to their home country and they, they are able to explain their experiences in America. So I think we have to ramp up those kind of programs like we haven't done in a very long time. We're not just facing one threat, China, we're facing another threat, and that is Russia. We've got to do a lot more. Let me ask you about an idea. It's not a new idea. In fact, it's it's based on an on an old apparatus the U.S. government had, and I love nothing better than talking about U.S. bureaucratic structures and politics. It's it's a it's a little problem. It's so fun. Yeah, I know. I think it's really fun. Maybe maybe uh, I like to nerd out on this stuff. So, we used to, U.S. government used to have this thing called the U.S. Information Agency that was a subsidiary yeah. agency of the State Department, and it was a global agency, and it sent foreign service officers around the world promoting the United States, uh, sharing information, and really making sure, as, as you just said, that our, we had a unified message on these important issues around the world. It was dismantled in 1996 and basically merged into the, into the State Department. Some folks are talking about bringing that back. Elliot Abrams, who I have a ton of respect for, thinks this is a good idea. Do you think that recreating USIA or something like it, something analogous to it, would be a useful tool as we kind of move into this next phase of the post Cold War post 9-11 era when it's pretty clear we got some adversaries we have to deal with. I think we have to get a lot more serious about telling our story. And we don't tell our story well enough here in America. How can we expect us ourselves to be telling it well overseas too? There is so much criticism of America here at home and abroad by Americans. And while it's right to look at some of our sins of the past and talk about it, we don't have to beat ourselves up about it. And th that's one of the reasons I went to work at the State Department. I think you and I've talked about this before. I was on a trip as a reporter um, with USAID in Sudan, in Darfur and in South Sudan. And I saw the amazing work that the U.S. government was doing on behalf of people there to create a more stable environment in Sudan, period. And because we could create a more stable environment there, it would create a more stable 
nation, more stable regions, so that we wouldn't have to send U.S. forces to go fight something over there at some point. Let's get back to that. Let's be proud of who we are as a country. Sure, we've done some, you know, pretty crummy things in the past, and we can talk about that. But we're a great country. We're the most generous nation on the planet. We consistently come together to help others for no other reason than it's the right thing to do. And I think we should be proud of that. The State Department should be proud of that. And we should be out there telling that story. Um, too often, I, and I love my former colleagues at the State Department, I have a world of respect for the jobs that they do. But too often, we get bogged down in thinking about like the bad things that America has done in the past, or not liking America's foreign policy in a certain region, or getting clientitis. Um, where you're serving in a particular country and you become so sympathetic to that country that you, you know, become less of a cheerleader for your own. So, so let's get back and kind of fix that way of thinking and be proud of who we are. And one way that we could do that is potentially, you know, pulling together U.S. Agency for Global Media or U.S. Information Agency structures of the past that we know worked before. One of the uh, amazing things I've I've noticed in this Russia debate, and we hear this from developing countries, is they they see the United States as analogous to a colonizing power. Of course, we were not a colonizing power. We used to be a colony of a colonizing power. Like, if anything, mm-hmm. we should be identifying with these countries that are fighting for freedom and independence. Oh. It's Russia that has invaded Ukraine and is thwarting its independence ambitions and sovereignty. So I like I we we should be pretty robust in our pushback against messages like that, I think. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and and we tend to not do that. And I'll raise like one controversial issue that you and I have, have touched on in the past. And that is, as we look at Voice of America, as we look at Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, you know, why don't we utilize those structures in a way that they were initially intended to be used as, you know, a voice for the good work that America does. But those programs are funded by Congress, by U.S. taxpayers. Other countries view Voice of America and others as propaganda entities anyway. Why do we need to report on, you know, what a terrible country um, some of the reporters think we are? Why not, yes, accurately cover when the United States has done things that it's, you know, ashamed of? But let's not let's not beat that to death. Let's talk about the good things that America is doing and have these reporters do it from a more pro-American uh, vantage point. We can do it. We should do it. It would require a change in the charter. And I know it would be so controversial. Journalists would like their heads would explode at the idea of this. But I don't think the people who work for Voice of America have to be big J journalists. They can be telling a story about what the U.S. government does in uh, all around the world, the good things that the United States government does and engages in. Yes, we can talk about um, things that we regret, uh, difficult experiences that we've had as a nation, because that can be very educational for other countries. And it's accurate. But I don't think that we have to beat ourselves up either. And I don't think that U.S. taxpayers should be paying for Voice of America and Radio Free Europe to, to, to beat ourselves up. Talk a little bit about kind of the modalities that are involved in the U.S. communicating with with populations in, in other countries. The, the traditional model is TV broadcasting, radio broadcasting, shortwave. Uh, these are all, of course, 
ways to communicate with a lot of people that were used extensively in the last century. This century, almost everyone's got a smartphone or some kind of device that allows them to get messages uh, through the internet. How much should we be balancing kind of the old ways with the new way as as we as we think about doing a better job of communicating what the U.S. government's doing? I, I think there are ways to do uh, to do it both. Uh, there's still a very um, there's a real value in those old school tools and techniques. There are parts of the world that you know where people still don't have a lot of cell phones. It's changing, um, but there are parts of the world where they don't have easy access to that. So I think there is still uh, a role for traditional radio, and that's important. We should continue to fund those kinds of um, those programs to get information out. But as we look at a country like Venezuela, for example, where the government will shut down internet access or shut down its you know television networks, and people can't get easy access to information, they go to Twitter, and that's where we have to be smart as the United States government at utilizing those tools to tell to tell our story and get information to people. I mean, I, I remember when I was at the State Department, we would get so many notes from Venezuelan citizens who were, you know, just horrified by what was taking place in, in their country. And they would write to us on Twitter. So we really ramped up at the time our Spanish uh, language outreach through entities like Twitter and others to get that information out there. So I think I think we have to do a lot more of that and continue to look for ways that people can access information. As we see in Russia, as uh, the Russian government has shut down uh, media outlets. I think we should look for ways to um, help facilitate um, regular Russian people being able to obtain and utilize uh, VPNs so that they can have access to information. We've got to keep working at all those tools. And doing these kinds of things is just as important as doing um, as, as investing in our military. And we have to do more of this. We're not just facing one big great power competition with China. We're facing this with Russia. Oh, and by the way, also Iran too. So we have to be smarter about it and we have to do a lot more. Um, Another thing I wanted to hit on is that when I was at state, we did a fair amount of work at helping to train foreign journalists in spotting disinformation. And I think those are programs that, you know, the bean counters might look at and think that, well, why are you doing that? But that's smart. And Russia has been really good in the past at disinformation campaigns. Um, now I think the world is onto them at how laughable and ridiculous Russian claims are. Something could be black and Russia says it's something that's white. So I, I think we need to continue to train journalists in spotting disinformation. And we did a lot of these programs throughout Eastern Europe and elsewhere. And I think we need to continue to do that, um, make people aware of what Russia does and how do they utilize those tools to push out false information globally, and we can work together to combat that. Great point, Heather. And and I want to ask you about a kind of a related thing with China. China's got this new, well, it's not really new, but they're a little more bold about it, turning their, their diplomats into these wolf warriors, or they're practicing mm-hmm. wolf warrior diplomacy. Uh, and, it's, and it's based on some fairly obscure uh, Chinese action movie. But suffice to say, Chinese diplomats are, are feeling and being pressured to be a lot more provocative in their public acts. They're insulting Americans on Twitter. They're having public press conferences where they are almost belligerent and advancing stuff that is clearly not true. And this, this seems to be of value in the Chinese foreign ministry currently. First of all, 
Do you think that's effective in the world? And depending on your answer there, how, how should the U.S. be countering this, this wolf warrior phenomenon? Well, it, it's funny because um, I, I think China has taken a page out of Russia's playbook. And that's exactly what Russia has been doing. I mean, I, let me give you an example. Uh, RT, uh, Russia's sponsored state media paid for by the Russian government. Um, RT was allowed into the State Department press briefing room. And RT, quote unquote, reporters would have a hard pass that would enable them to go into the State Department press briefing room and ask a question or anybody who was briefing a question. And the State Department allowed that to happen because we believe in, you know, free speech and free exchange of ideas. But Russia used that against us. And I don't agree with allowing RT into the State Department press briefing room. And often what they would do when they would come in, they would try to provoke me or anybody else behind that podium, they would hold up pictures of some supposed dead body somewhere in the world and claim that America was responsible. And they would try to put you on the spot to answer their question about whatever it was they claimed had happened. And you just can't take the bait. You can't take the bait. You can't let them get to you. But I also don't think there's it, it's appropriate for them to be in a press briefing room. There is a way to show the Russian people that freedom of speech, that a free press is strong, and that's what's best for a country and a society. But I don't think the way to do it is by allowing RT in a press briefing room. Uh, Congress was much wiser than the State Department was, and Congress you know, eliminated them from covering some of the congressional briefings on the Hill several, several years back. So they, they were smart to do so. Um, China is now taking that page out of, out of Russia's playbook, and they think that badgering us is going to work I don't think it does. I mean, it's incumbent upon whoever is speaking with their press to not to not take the bait, to not get angry. But also, I think we're a lot wiser to their ridiculous actions these days. When Russia claims that they haven't killed a bunch of civilians, well, you know what? We know they have. We know that they're responsible for it. We know that Russia has used a nerve agent on European soil. We know that Russia has murdered innocent, innocent civilians in Syria with chemical weapons and other just atrocious actions. And, and, and so we know that that happens and we're wise to it today. Great. Uh, I, I don't want to end this without asking you uh, about Afghanistan um, in the wake of our uh, really poorly managed withdrawal from Afghanistan. Mm. Last year, a lot of folks were left behind. Americans, friends of our country, people that we had worked with, uh, people who had carried out our programs in that country, people who had risked their lives for what we were trying to do there. You've done a lot of work uh, helping to get people out of Afghanistan who are at risk. Could you, could you talk about that work if you're willing to do so and kind of share with our listeners what they might be able to do to contribute? Oh, thank you so much for asking. Um, so I, I think like a lot of us, um, watching the manner in which the United States left Afghanistan, and I wouldn't call it a chaotic withdrawal. It wasn't chaotic. It was a disastrous withdrawal. And that's not a political statement. I mean, anytime you leave thousands and thousands of people behind, um, including American citizens, and uh, including people who had worked in our embassy for 20 years, and we just leave them high and dry and we're out, that's disastrous. That's not just chaotic. 
So as I, as I watched this happen, happen I, I, I was just so heartbroken knowing that there were many Afghans who served at the State Department, who served alongside our U.S. military, who were all of a sudden stuck there. And just by the mere fact that they had worked with Americans or perhaps they had fought against the Taliban, they were now at risk of retaliation. And we have seen in the six plus months since the United States left, you know, a real uptick in um, hunting down some of these people, murdering, disappearances, torture, and all of that. So I've worked with several um, veterans groups, um, most mostly Task Force Pineapple, but now we've become a part of a, of a growing coalition called Moral Compass, which is working to lobby on Capitol Hill for um, assistance and and getting more Afghans out. And these are vetted Afghans, I should say, Afghans who worked alongside us or who worked in our embassies. And by the way, we made promises to a lot of these people. We promised a lot of these people, if you work with us, we will provide you safe passage to the United States and you can come here. We're not fulfilling our promises. And that to me just isn't right. So I've been working to help um, help people get out and we've resettled some families here in the United States. And it's been one of the most satisfying things I've ever been involved with in my life. Um, I got a note just a week and a half ago from one SIV who had worked for the State Department. Um, he had worked for the INL Bureau, which is, is, you know, is the one that does the, the narcotics and so forth. And he finally got out along with his wife and his five children. And they're on their way to the United States where he will join with his father who lives in Houston and had served alongside U.S. forces. So it's been a real honor to help advocate on the part of these Afghans, but that's just one positive story about someone who's gotten out. There are thousands and thousands of people still stuck behind. And so we're advocating for Congress to, Congress to create a, a, a better pathway where um, people can be brought to safety. And as we look at what's happening now in Ukraine, it's so heartwarming to see how Poland has opened its doors to its neighbors and how the United States is rallying behind the Ukrainian people um, in offering them safe passage and refuge and visas to come to the United States or other countries. I think we need to be doing that for Afghan partners too. Um, we shouldn't just, you know, pick and choose who, you know, who we want to let in and, 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 and who we don't in, in a situation like this. These are people who served alongside us and in many cases um, protected our men and women on the battlefield. And and if I can just mention one more thing that really uh, bothers me, when we hear folks at the White House or elsewhere say, oh, the Afghan military, they just cut and run. Sure, some people did, but there were thousands and thousands of Afghan special operators who worked with our Navy SEALs, who worked with our Army's Green Berets, who fought until the very end. And they were literally calling our special ops guys here in America saying, our president has just fled the country. What do we do now? And they're still fighting. And our American guys ended up saying, hey, your president left the country. You're, you're kind of on your own now. So go be with your family, protect your family, and we'll work to get you out. And thankfully, you know, these veterans have been able to get some folks out, but they've got a long, long way to go. So I, I guess to answer your question on how to help, um, there are some great organizations still doing a lot of, a lot of important work. Um, from the Moral Compass Federation. Um, that's kind of the group of all the uh, veterans groups that have come together to work on this, to advocate uh, before Congress. And then um, Special Operations Association of America is doing a lot of work where they're literally providing 
not only assistance with safe passage, but then also food, water, medical attention to Afghans who can't get out and can't get to hospitals. And they're providing all of those things, essentially serving like the United Nations, serving the role that they should be doing. But these are all just through volunteers. And it's a pretty amazing effort and a real honor to be a part of it. Terrific. Uh, Thanks for sharing that, Heather. And thanks for uh, being with us this week. This was a terrific conversation. Really appreciate it. Oh, super fun. Les, thanks so much. Appreciate you asking. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Cesar Muir for research, and Jessica Jones and Ruth Joe for production assistance. Join us next week for another provocative conversation conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines 